Welcome to the Disrupt Education Podcast. I'm Peter Hostrosser. I'll be joined with Ali Privet, my co-host, in a minute. Hey, I want to uh, throw a shout out to all our subscribers. Thank you so much for subscribing. Um, we are well past 50,000 downloads at this time, um, and we can't thank you enough uh, for all that you have done uh, for us and in helping us understand different ways of doing uh, education and, uh, well, disrupting it for the better. Um, if you have a moment, head over to disrupteducation.co. You can reach out to us. Uh, Ali and I are doing some amazing work with schools, showing uh, people and educators, students, administrators, community members how to basically apply and up and amplify great things that are happening uh, in classrooms, which uh, is all around. We just don't see it all the time. Um, and that's kind of the disruptive nature that we're taking a look at that. Um, we'll have a lot more coming up in 2023 to tell you about that. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Ed Up Experience Podcast Network. Um, the Disrupt Education is a proud member of the Ed Up uh, Experience Podcast Network. If you go to edupexperience.com, uh, take a look at that amazing amount of people talking about education on every level uh, as well. We have an amazing guest as well um, with the Oregon Department of Education. Yes, that's an entire state. Um, somebody who is doing some amazing work around equity and anti-racism and internal and external, uh, both internally and externally, I should say. Um, his his a title is Assistant Superintendent of Research, Assessment, Data, Accountability, and Reporting. We have Dan Farley. He's going to be coming up uh, chatting with Ali and I, and he's asking and bringing up some uncomfortable things, which I think is very important in education right now. We need we need to get uncomfortable and and really start to face some things that um, you may or may not agree with, but we need to start this conversation and amplify it even more. Um, it is started, but we need to uh, dive deeper into it and. Uh, Get ready. This is a great episode. We'll be right back after this word from Spike View. Hey, it's Peter Hostrauser here. And hey, I want to tell you something about how I am actually disrupting education. Yeah, I'm moving forward with portfolios on SpikeView.com. If you head over to SpikeView.com, basically what we're teaching our students to do is actually to create a skills-based portfolio around their interests, their passions, and what they're good at. It's called the strength-based approach. So basically what we do is we build up our students and have them understand what they're good at and what they're interested in by the time they leave our high school. But it doesn't stop there. It's a K through gray. So if you want your students to continue to build their strengths in this day and age where resumes are dying and to show more and more about who they are, what they do, and they actually control all the data behind it, guess what? SpikeView is the place for you. Head over to spikeview.com, check it out. Let me know if you need anything because I tell you what, I have used this with my own family and my students. Check out spikeview.com today. Welcome to the Disrupt Education Podcast. Allie, how are you doing? I am well, Peter. It is a holiday eve. This won't come out, you know, Thanksgiving week, but 
you know, for, for those celebrating around the world, happy belated Thanksgiving. Yes, we uh, we are very, we're proactive. We get things done uh, before the, uh, the post. Um, what have you been up to lately? You've been uh, still jumping out of planes and such, no? I have been doing that, um, trying to get my coach rating currently. That's the current aspiration. Uh, so I can help other people get into the sport of skydiving. Uh, so I I jumped like 13 times uh, two weekends ago. It was great. It was a great, it's great weekend. I feel like it's cold. It's cold when you do that. It, um, so it's considered winter jumping here in Wisconsin. Most drop zones actually like shut down this time of year, mm -hmm. but our, the owners of the drop zone here love to jump. And as long as it's like above 30 degrees, they will do it. I think it's invigorating. Some of the people, some of my skydiving friends think I'm not normal, but because, <laughs> you know, that's fine. Even them, even then they're like, it's so cold. And I mean, they're like, well, you're a new jumper, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe it's all the adrenaline, but you know what? uh go big or go home yeah Jump right all, yeah all honestly if any long. of our listeners want to connect with Allie, check the notes they're all there you can ask her all about that but uh we have a great guest today uh dan farley is with us he's the assistant superintendent in oregon and i'm gonna call it radar um and i'm gonna let you explain that but dan how are you doing doing well uh peter and Allie. thank you for having me here and radar stands for research assessment data accountability and reporting we got to jump right into that so Sounds what good. does that entail first and then we'll dive into your kind of history because you have a unique you've taught we had a conversation right before the podcast you've taught every almost everything maybe everything in k through 12 so uh talk a little bit about your position now what does that mean and then kind of go back into your educational path so the office of radar is a new office that i'm uh, being uh, allowed to like help design and co-create uh, with other uh, directors and staff at ODE. Uh, I have basically two central charges, um, both of which are really exciting. One of which is to infuse data justice principles into the ways that our entire agency collects data, maintains uh, or stores uh, data, and then uh, shares data, of course, and then also reports data. Um, and all of those processes are, are implicated and, and need to be informed by uh, community uh, values. Um, and we certainly don't have a structure uh, for that work uh, to actually be done uh, right now. So that, that's one of the charges that I'm really looking forward to leaning into. The, the other is uh, to coordinate our research activities across the agency. Um, we currently have a lot of research going on, uh, both in partnership with universities, which I'll talk a little bit about. Uh, later in the podcast, um, but also internally because we have uh, research analysts on staff. Uh, but there, there's no like way of making our uh, approach to research coherent. There's no overall uh, research plan. So that is also a part of what I've been asked to to get started. And, and I love that on. it's sandbox. That's I think that's the disruptive part about this. Um, before we dive into more of that and, and how you're being a disruptor. Um, in a good way, of course. Uh, tell us a little bit about like your, your teaching past. What, what, what yeah. does that look like? Yeah, I, I was uh, pre-NCLB. That tells you a little how old I am. But um, So I didn't have to be highly qualified in any of these areas. Uh, and I was uh, you know, new to teaching. And uh, for those of you who have been teachers, uh, you know, the newer you are, the more quote-unquote opportunities you're exposed to. Uh, so I've, I've taught courses uh, literally from K to... 22 now um 
ranging from introduction to French, to physical education, to world history, uh, to pre-calculus, pre-AP English. I literally, I've taught kids how to bowl. I've taught them how to jump over, uh, you know, the, the, the high jump bar, like anything, everything, coaching, parking lot duty, <laughs> you name it, I got to do it. Ali, I think this is uh, this is where we talk about some silos here. If, if he's been across them, what do you think? I know. I, I honestly love the the variety in in what you speak of, like teaching. Maybe back when you started, compared to to when I started teaching, you couldn't just like flip flop around all these different fields. It's you know it requires much more certifications and testing and and all of this and so there are these these bigger silos but there's such like a richness in being able to go like in between these different topics so i think that experience also probably helps you um in your current roles in terms of seeing like the breadth of what we need to bring into a testing environment um so the other thing i wanted to say we kind of hop into uh this is that i met dan at the beyond multiple choice conference and was just really intrigued by how you were sharing about the, the your talk on the true score fallacy. Um, you want to give just like a little a little blip about that because um, it was really fascinating. And yeah, it's totally sure. like I was like, oh, Dan thinks about stuff differently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my my experience at the the university where I, I got my PhD at the University of Oregon in, in quantitative research methods within their education leadership program. But most of my actual work, I was working full time at the same time um, for the state of Oregon, developing their alternate assessment. So I had a very strong background in measurement. And what I've realized over time, I was also an educational diagnostician. Um, so maybe master, jack of all trades and master of not too many. But um, in that work as a diagnostician uh, and studying IQ tests and achievement tests, adaptive behavior, creativity or intelligence, et cetera, um, I realized that tests have error. You know, we don't measure anything perfectly ever. That's true when you're measuring a board. That's true when you're measuring your height. That's true when you're measuring your weight. Um, So all of those measurements have error. And the true score fallacy, like the primary tenet of that is just the fact that measurement error exists. And we also ignore it almost entirely in application. We treat scores as true um, because, and they're also perceived to be objective um, and scientific um, and all of these other inappropriate adjectives that come along with quantitative scores. Um, But it's like people don't question so much things that they don't understand. So when they get a scaled score and it's based on an IRT model, people are gonna be like, ooh, that sounds impressive. I I probably should trust that. And they don't know the degree to which they should trust that. Um, nor do they understand really how, you know, most testing is, is probabilistic, not deterministic. There's so much in there, right? Like, you know, <laughs> listening to, to Dan talk about this stuff, it's like you, and then you're in it, you're actually in a role where you can, that, that is heavily data based, right? And so I just, I feel like it's a unique position for you to, to have this, this, I don't know, ideology around testing and then have the ability to make changes on a, on a pretty large scale. Right. Um, and so what would you say, you know, like 
around do you see yourself as a disruptor in education or like a change agent in education and like how would you classify yourself in that uh realm that's a really good question i mean i've i've always been interested in social justice um that's one of the reasons why i became an educator um but i, th I think like being what you've called a disruptor is is really about for me just trying to honor the experiences of others and living into my full humanity as a, as a person, as a human being. And the experiences that I've had have been various. Um, so I've been able to kind of walk in different shoes uh, in my career. Um, but the shoes I've been walking in have been white male, you know, dominant culture shoes. And I've been walking in systems that are designed to serve me. Uh, so kind of realizing that and um, also learning more, uh, both through my agency and through personal study about Know, the, the actual full complete um, history of the United States um, has has been really um, eye-opening and I know some call that being woke uh, for me um, it does feel like having my eyes open to something that I wasn't seeing I wasn't noticing before um, but there there are a lot of important works I could uh, point to, uh, certainly Dr. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, Bettina Loves, uh, We Want to Do More Than Survive, uh, Heather McGee's The Sum of Us, uh, those are all really central to my, my lexicon, as is The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. So I, I just hadn't realized, and I wasn't taught in my schooling, how systematically um, the United States and the government have excluded uh, persons of color from um, from having access to and from maintaining um, and then, of course, expanding any form of wealth. It's been absolutely atten intentional, systematic and successful. Right. Power still resi resides where it used to. And so if if doing work that fights that is being disruptive, then I suppose you you could call me a disruptor. But all of that work also requires uh, partnership. I mean, there is this reality, right? Um, and, and I'm going to kind of focus on the reality because reality isn't what it seems uh, sometimes in education. I'll just leave that there. I'm going to yeah. be very generic on that statement because I, I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit. Um, you know, as, as you're moving through this, wow, this, this moment of clarity and then in this moment of how do we, how do we change? You know, everybody talks about turning the Titanic and all these different things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a massive things. But, you know, what are some of the methods and tools that, that you're looking right now at and or implementing or experimenting with or what have you learning about to connect that academia, whatever academia is now, um, and then the, re the reality of it? Because, mm -hmm. You know, you and I know like a lot of people do not want to see that reality because we're uncomfortable with it and it's not what we're used to. And I can identify that as as a white male as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, what what uh, what are you what are you looking at these days in that sandbox? One of my favorite sayings is actually from uh, Don Quixote and it's not Don Quixote, it's Sancho Panza. He says a lot of littles makes a much. So we might be making small changes. Um and, but depending upon where we are in the system, they have rippling impacts. Uh, so a, a change that I make with my team in Oregon that might seem small and it might seem like it took us a really long time to get to it. Like I'll give you one example. It took us 18 months to change a footnote and like one sentence in, in an official state scoring guide for writing to allow for gender neutral pronoun use. 
Like that's one small change, but it has has some wow. rippling impacts on our systems and in terms of like the assumptions that people uh, carry into their work. Mm-hmm. So I think um, systems change isn't the goal, right? Um, I think we have a lot of political reinforcement of the fact that just change in and of itself is not always good. Mm-hmm. We uh, we also want the change. Uh, to create a world that's more accessible and where opportunity is more available for all of our children. Um, I mean, the challenge of how to make research and practice, uh, like how to situate them so that they are mutually informing has been a longstanding challenge in our education systems for sure. One of the uh, steps that I took in Oregon to start um, heading a, a different direction, and you have to take you know one step, one direction, uh, and then it leads to another, and then you start having this like just um, cavalry of steps, literally, uh, is to look at our technical advisory committee. So we have uh, ATTAC uh, is the abbreviation for that, TAC. And that's a group of experts from all over the country who give us uh, advice, uh, recommendations around our measurement approaches uh, in our state assessment system. So I designed our TAC, uh, one, to represent uh, a balanced assessment system. So we have experts in formative assessment practices. We have experts in interim assessment practices, and we have experts in summative practices. We also have um, TAC members who are um, expert in anti-racist assessment practices. So we were able to connect with Dr. Jennifer Randall uh, in that space, and that was a really intentional move uh, that can help us get better because she's one of uh, you know the lead uh, thought partners and researchers in terms of anti-racist assessment practices. So. One of the strategies is to like surround yourself with people who are doing the work that you want to be doing, um, and that's uh, that's what I did. But I I did it through an advisory panel because I want want the advice that I'm receiving also filtered through that lens first, mm. like before I hear it. Um, and so that was that was a pretty important move. I mean, we're also trying to you know these are all things that are built on relationships and. Uh, uh, staff in positions like mine, uh, where you know they can, they're kind of political. They don't always last, depending on who the governor happens to be or what shifts occur in the legislature. Uh, so I, I think part of it is just making as much hay as you can while the sun is shining, uh, and those systems are aligned. But we, we're trying to leverage our university partnerships more consistently, often through grant-funded. Um, activities. Uh, we are currently par- partnering, for example, with researchers at the University of Oregon on an IES uh, research uh, project. I'm, I'm principal investigator on that because it had to be funded through a state education agency. Uh, but it's looking at the e- efficacy of one of our high school success uh, programs. Uh, so that that's you know based on relationship and also connects research directly to practice and also informs research by connecting with practitioners. So that's a mutually informing arrangement. Um, And I don't see that being the case all the time. We're also trying to use uh, as much, well, using quite a bit of our ESSER three funding uh, to look at both short and long-term learning challenges. Uh, And one of the um, research partnerships that we're working on in that space is with Oregon State University. We're developing theories of learning and and a framework uh, that educators uh, and professional development uh, purveyors can use over time in in terms of literacy and numeracy instruction, specifically for students with disabilities and for students who are federally identified as English learners. Um, And prior to that, um, as a result of the pandemic, we I created I worked with a team to create um, Oregon Open Learning, which is a website of uh, open educational resources, uh, so that we could not just develop all of these uh, 
high quality curricula and materials that can now be culturally responsive because we have control over their content, um, which we don't over publisher materials. But now we have a platform that we can all use uh, to share mm. uh, those materials with anyone who wants to dial in over time and they'll always be there. Um, so those are that's kind of three um, ways that we have tried uh, to kind of start developing a system that is going to trend that direction. And the more you can make that systemic, the harder it is to disrupt thereafter, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want your disruption disrupted, <laughs> which is part of the challenge we're facing right now, too. You don't. What's really interesting about um, your work as compared to probably a lot of our guests is how multi-dimensional yours is in terms of like policy and and the and the level at which you can have these conversations and it could have a a, a bigger ripple effect because and it's not that like i love what you said you know you have to like you have to start where you're at and, and be okay with the small wins and and that any progress is better than than no progress um and and fighting for for those types of changes um, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with getting that footnote changed. And then also looking at these these interweaving structures that you're trying to keep cemented that increases the educational, I don't know, uh, kind of terrace or, or, or groundwork that you're laying that could impact generations worth of, of, of students. So because this is like really, really high level work, right? Like um, a lot of our, a lot of our guests are educators in a, in a classroom or mm -hmm. they are, um, they are a, a company um, or they're students, right? How, what would you say, you know, um, to kind of our audience and people who aren't in this like kind of policy field of like, what are ways they can, you know, I, I don't know that I ever worked with someone like you as an educator, right? In terms of like, that is making these big policy changes. I don't know if you have Peter, but you know, it's like, how could, how could people like work with someone like you, not necessarily like directly, but you know, that they, that, what kind of platforms or channels are there to kind of share, open these doors because I, I'm listening to you and I'm like, this is really good stuff. And I like that you're, you're being very intentional surrounding yourself with certain filters, but I'm not sure that that's the case in every, in any, everyone who's like in a similar position to yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm just curious on, you know, how do we keep those channels open? How do we allow policy to be changed? And like, not you don't want to in flood the system, but you also want to be able to to have those types of conversations. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that question um, can only be answered through, you know, systems that support uh, substantial, sustained education partner and uh, tribal, sovereign tribe uh, engagement, as well as community organization engagement. Because uh, th those are the ways that, you know, we are, are are kind of steering our education agency toward. And we have relationships developed at present where we can get uh, input uh, and, and do some co-creation work. Uh, but they're, they're kind of lucky relationships, I would call them, right? I, I happen to know somebody or my colleague happens to know somebody. Um, so it's not a system yet. Um, so that's that's kind of what I really want to see happen. It, where mm. it's not just like lucky relationships that drive the work. It's a it's a systemic um, organization where people get paid to show up and share their 
their experiences, their stories, educators, families, uh, tribal members. Um, I think that has been to me um, like the answer. Most of the most the, the most difficult challenges that I've faced in my career have felt difficult because they felt like they were mine and they weren't mine. <laughs> they were ours. I just didn't have the other people uh, around me to help me solve that. And I, I think we can easily too fall into a trap. Like I taught uh, in the classroom. I remember what that was like, but that was 20 years ago. I don't know what it's like right now. Mm. So we, we also have to maintain awareness that other people's lived experience, even if they're in the same role, it's totally different than ours, uh, depending on their positionality, their power structure, um, you know, perceptions about where they went to school um, or whether their vocabulary is, you know, intense or, uh, you know, impressive, et cetera. So it really is about just maintaining openness uh, about others' experiences. And one thing that I've learned pretty deeply at ODE, which wasn't the case when I was in higher ed, <laughs> which you know, that there's there's one more, there's more than one way to look at any given event. Um, and this is the important part for higher ed uh, staff. All of those perspectives are, are correct. Um, you know, in higher education, we kind of learn and, and think that there is really one right way. Um, and that way we expect to change in really small increments over time, maybe. But um, the more that I've experienced, uh, you know, policy and connecting across uh, cultures, um, there are multiple ways of, of viewing the same experience, and they're only kind of correct to the degree that they're combined, um, and they are complementary. Another thing that's uh, not true is that they you know that they're always uh, in conflict. They're not always in conflict. They're usually just you know looking at different sides of, of a of a challenge rather than being you know different interpretations of challenge. This is how we know you're very deep into your work, Dan. It's, 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 it is such, it is very hard. As, as I'm listening and, and comprehending as much as I can from my own lens, it's, it's super exciting yet terrifying. I can, I, you know, I think one of the things we do in education and what we're kind of, I don't know, Allie, if, if we, we broke out of this somehow, but we're kind of like, but what if it goes wrong, you know, and we're always like thinking that way yet, even if it goes wrong, I mean, as a business educator myself, I mean, that's where the opportunity lies. Right. So, um, you know, thinking about that and man, it's, it's difficult because I have my own uh, children. I have a senior in high school, I have a, a freshman in, in high school. Um, and you know, and this series, uh, was started on going beyond the score in education. Mm -hmm. Um, what does going beyond the score mean to you and or your research in education? Because everybody, you know, how are you doing in school? I got a 4.0. What does that mean? You know, so or, you know, I did really well on this, you know, state test or this national test assessment. And also as a person helping somebody transition to post-secondary ed, it's still out there as well. Um, yeah. So what, what, what is going beyond the score mean to you in education? Yeah, I, I think big picture wise, um, the, the first thing I would point to in terms of like a framework uh, to use to answer that question is that the scores that we're talking about, the assumption that is carried into that question is that they're, they're quantitative, like it's quantitative information. So of course, the first thing we need to do is realize the limitations of quantitative information. 
and be honest about those and talk about those when we're making decisions. I think the second thing is we need to add more qualitative information into uh, the conversations that we're having as educators. And our accountability systems have focused over the last 20 years almost exclusively on academic outcomes. And we have ignored process and we have ignored inputs. So you don't have a systemic view if you're just looking at outcomes because you don't know what the hell to do with them until you really understand what your processes are and what your inputs are. And you don't get that information without connecting with students and without using qualitative approaches to gathering additional uh, information. So that's kind of the big picture framework I think I would use. Um, I think the headline, uh, like the thing I think is most important in this conversation is uh, equitable grading practices in the right. classroom. I mean, that's, that's really, um, to me, where most of the biases in our system show up. And I, I know state summative assessments get a heck of a lot of attention in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not even the tip of the iceberg when it comes to how our scoring um, in education in the United States yeah, is inequitable. It's really, it's more, it's more in the classroom every day, every minute, uh, that those biases are being reinforced. And that's not to like hand off my responsibility, you know, at the state either. Like I'm trying to work on all of the above. Um, right. uh, but again, you know, back to the, I think the first question, like scores aren't sacrosanct and they're not objective um, and they shouldn't be treated as such. Um, and uh, error in measure is really uh, just a fact. It's a fact of life. Like there's oxygen and nitrogen in the air. Um, it is something we have to deal with. Um, so in Oregon, one example that I could point you to, there are a couple ways and moves that we're trying to make uh, to really get at that concept that I named. Um, during the pandemic, we developed a student survey um, called the Student Educational Equity Development Survey. Um, and that survey centers student voice um, in our state assessment and accountability system in kind of a unique way at present. Um, and I can't actually tell you where it might go. I, I've been kind of traveling under a, if you build it, they will come uh, mentality. Um, and if you do good work and you show how it can be used and you convince people to use it, like then it's part of the system rather than, you know, an NCLB top down, you thou shalt uh, sort of approach. So I don't have evidence that this will work. Um, so when you talked about making mistakes and you talked about risk, um, yeah, there's a lot of risk in this work. Um, I think the primary risk is is building hope that will be dashed. Um, that's the thing I'm probably most uh, concerned about. Um, but I also know that we can't, I can't, I would not feel comfortable sitting around and uh, doing nothing and just letting the status quo roll forward because I see the harms in that every day. Um, so the seed survey, though, just to get back to that one, because it's a really important part of what I have tried to do with uh, colleagues at the department. Um, it, it asks students questions about their opportunities to learn, their access to learning resources, their self-efficacy and beliefs about how, um, how well they understand uh, different content areas, so reading, writing, math, and science. And then it also uh, looks at their sense of belonging within their school and within their uh, district. Um, and we looked at additional um, indicators as well, but those are like the four constructs that stay the same across all grade levels. So we can start looking longitudinally uh, with districts that have leaned into that process. Um, we still have pretty low participation rates in that uh, survey because it's optional. And there are some competing priorities, of course, uh, anytime you are working in the system. Yeah. Uh, but 
hopefully we, we continue to kind of uh, grow understanding that that resource is available, um, show how districts who are engaged in that work are using it uh, and increase interest kind of organically uh, from the bottom uh, and up rather than the top down. It's also, mm. I, I will say, like listening to you speak and, and, and you know, it's not, I don't hear that much about policymakers taking risks like you, which is amazing. And I think there is almost this, it, it is, I would say it's it's a good top down if I could say it like that, right? Because if, if your leaders are taking those risks, then that also does, you know, not to throw the reg and trickle down, but it does trickle down into, you know, so you have this build from the bottom and up. Uh, mm -hmm. The hamster wheel, though, Allie, how do how do how do we get how do we get more people in in timeliness and such? But I don't know. I mean, it's I don't I think I've ever heard anyone talk about um, policy work in a gray such a gray like space. And a gray space is good. Um, it needs to be talked about, um, especially you know what you're presenting here with like scores um are measures and measures of fallacy and they're not you know they're not and i'll be all like that it i think it's so ingrained in parents and communities and organization systems from like large mass scale that it's it's beating that down to kind of open up the windows for other ways for us to assess and measure learning outcomes um moving forward and, and and where that goes so we love to ask this question here and it's really like you know dream up uh your best you know kind of educational system of the future you know sky's the limit you, know, you can whatever comes to mind you know so like if you could imagine um an educational system uh whatever you want on it what would what would it look like what would it feel like you know what would people get out of it hmm. yeah that's a really good question i mean i think um this this might sound odd to say but my ideal education system wouldn't be designed by me uh, it wouldn't be designed by white males with my experiences it would be designed by those whom our education systems have been harmed um so you know, I look at a system where members from sovereign tribes, uh, members from disenfranchised communities by race, ethnicity, got together, talked about what their shared values are, how they could reflect that in curriculum standards and assessment practices. Um, I know for sure there would be some coherence, uh, you know, with current um, practices, but um, that would actually be my ideal. Um, what I've learned too, and some of the work that we're doing is and if I, if I get a chance, I can talk a little bit about what we're doing on in, in our kindergarten assessment space, uh, because that we have really uh, tried to flip the script um, on how assessments even come to be and what they are and how they should be used. Um, and that will also take some time to scale up uh, as well. But the the kindergarten assessment, I'll just talk about. That was a good yeah, segue yeah, for myself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, just talk that's about it. important because I think one of the things, just to kind of preface it, and I think you're you're here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is mindset, right? We we build mindset in and not fixed mindset at that age, and how do we keep it all the way through, right? So the our kindergarten assessment historically um, was called the kindergarten readiness assessment at some points, um, and was misinterpreted uh, by some as like, you know, is your child ready for kindergarten or not? Like your child's coming to kindergarten because they're five. 
Um, so that's not the question. The question is, are, are, is our system ready to support that student in learning the way that student needs to be supported because the student is coming. Um, so that was one kind of concern that existed, but it really looked at, you know, pretty classical foundational skills um, approaches to literacy and numeracy, you know, single digit uh, adding letter sounds, letter names, the usual stuff. Um, and the way that that particular assessment was developed, it didn't actually include um, in the development process the student populations that it really needed to, particularly an area at a behavioral component, so an observation component, where implicit biases, of course, um, showed up pretty strongly, we noted over time. So we kind of set that model aside, our state board. The other thing I need to really name uh, around risk-taking is I. I I'm not allowed to just take risks all by myself, right? I have to have support <laughs> from my team, support from our leadership, support from the governor, uh, support from educators at large. So I think in Oregon, I'm in a really unique space. I think I would have a, a lot more partners if other people were in a situation like I am in. Um, so I don't believe in heroes. I, I believe in kind of collective uh, activity. Um, and I, I'm not like a savior or a hero in any way. I'm just in a position where I, I can do this work. I think a lot of us would do this work if we could. Um, so the kindergarten assessment went away from that. Um, so we are actually connecting with community in the development phase. And we ask community members, kindergarten teachers, what do you want to know? Um, what do you want your kindergarten teachers to know about your child when they start kindergarten? Um, and we're also partnering with our early learning division uh, in that process. Um, and what what was uh, kind of like the resounding first step is, well, we really need to learn more about um, the funds of knowledge that kids and families are bringing to the classroom. Because of course, what is good teaching? Finding out what students know, exposing them to something new, and then showing them how to map that new learning to what they already understand. So if you don't understand anything about what they already understand, how are you going to do that? Um, so what we put in place um, in our piloting uh, this year, and we're piloting again uh, next year as we try to figure out how to scale it up, uh, is a family interview uh, process. So it's a pretty simple, short um, interview process where, uh, you know, schools learn a lot about families, not just like what brings the child joy, uh, but what learning conditions the child benefits from, what languages are spoken in the home. So the school and the teacher are learning a lot of uh, really important information about how that family needs to be supported in order to even access the system at all. Like, do I need an interpreter? Um, and those are some questions that school districts don't find out oftentimes till like who knows when, right? The next first time they have parent-teacher conferences, maybe. Um, so starting off with that as your first educational move, meeting with families one-on-one -on -one and learning about what uh, their child brings to the school um, in an asset-based frame, um, mm -hmm. I think, I hope, uh, will be game-changing. And we've heard from uh, families uh, and from teachers that it really has been an eye-opening and positive process uh, so far. Um, they, one family shared uh, something really uh, poignant that they, they had never been invited to a conversation with a school for any of their children where they were asked what they knew about their child, not once. And they had multiple older children who had been through the system. It was always them going to school so the teacher could tell the family what they knew about the child, right? So that needs to be a two-way communication uh, channel, at least. And I think 
the family interview is really one step that direction. So hopefully it can be scaled. That's yet another risk. Uh, we don't know that we're going to get funding from the legislature to scale that up. Uh, we don't know if it'll have buy-in across different communities because our communities are not resourced in the same ways right now. Uh, so there, you know, anytime you build something, you have to you have to be open to the fact that you don't understand all of the complexity that exists in the system, but you also have to trust that others have a lot of knowledge and skill that you will eventually uh, be able to lean on and you don't even know them yet, but the process will introduce you to them. That is amazing right there because that's such the human-centered approach rather than you got to fit into this system. I see it and I know, Ali, you've seen it all the time. We're both high school educators. Um, especially when a, when a student moves from a different school, a different country, is, uh, you know, um, in, you know, any kind of shock to the system for an individual. And then we pile on, well, you got to fit into our culture and you have to fit into this. And, and I love how mm -hmm. you preface that with, you know, what the interview. I'm, I'm a huge component. I, I, I'm a huge believer in the component of, um, and maybe this isn't the right terminology, but a digital portfolio for a student and their family to build so we can see who this person is, who what they bring to the table throughout K through 12, in our case, mm -hmm. maybe K through 16 or however you wanna, you wanna put that. Um, I absolutely love that idea because I can't teach any sort of curriculum without knowing who individuals are in my course and you know it's it's the old you know we want to force our students i just talked to somebody about this today in, in our evaluation system right we want to force our students to comply but if you're a great teacher you're going to be able to make them you know agile and flexible and they're going to be able to have self-efficacy and all these other pieces but the system is actually opposite of that so i just i really really am, am humbled to hear you know how you're looking at things um there Allie, what do you think i really i'm always amazed at the variety of answers we get from this question but um i i really like how your answer it's different than than most in that it's the kindergarten you might not think that that is that is related but it very much is so because you're talking about dreaming up a system from the when they enter and carrying that through rather than you know uh, waiting um and and bringing everybody to the table and 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 having those those discussions early early on so that everyone benefits is on the same page from the get-go so i just think it's a beautiful answer we're um i want to give you a chance are we missing anything is there any other more highlights that that you wanted to throw out there dan before we give uh we, we let people connect with you and, and see, hey, what how is this working and how can people maybe even scale across the states um, a little earlier than hope uh, than, than we think we will? Yeah, um, the only thing that I was kind of hoping to get an opportunity to talk about a little bit isn't necessarily something that's happening um, at ODE, but it is, it is about how public education systems have been situated in our country that I think has been really harmful. Um, and I also can't say that I have a whole lot of people who agree with me about this stance, but I'm going to name it anyway, because I, I think um, I think it's important to talk about. Um, and 
you know, Lyndon Johnson framed our public education system as the like central cog in the war against poverty. Um, I think that was purveying a false assumption that education as a system could actually fix poverty. Um, well, it's true, of course, that education can like shift opportunities within a social and cultural system through the work of like building student skill and knowledge. That's what we do every day. Um, it's also true that education uh, in and of itself cannot fix all of the social and cultural and systemic inequities that have been um, literally nurtured by our government um, over time. Um, and you know, the government uh, had practices in place that we are still dealing with. And by we, I don't necessarily mean white males uh, by my, like myself, but uh, primarily people of color, including genocide, um, slavery, displacement, cultural erasure, um, redlining, predatory financial practices, you know, suburbs that were designed specifically for white families. Um, the impacts of those kinds of uh, policies and practices are absolutely still with us. And I, I'm flummoxed that that isn't a shared understanding in our country at this point. I am baffled. I'm not sure what hasn't been uh, paid attention to yet. But I, I think part of it is we're not reading the right sources uh, in our in our public school history classes specifically. That's changing, of course, mm -hmm. since I was in history class that was a long time ago um but basically i i think there we have a lot of work to do those of us who are um you know in the education system now to to educate ourselves about what the full history of our country is uh, and you're not going to get that without doing some deep reading um, and some exploration and finding other people who are having like conversations and you don't even know what you're missing until you read a different way of looking at what you experienced and, and realize like, oh my goodness, like I got a very narrow um, and white centric story of our so-called history. Um, so I think that's something that I wanted to make sure I share. Congress has a, has a substantial role in addressing poverty and it's not just through our education systems. Mm -hmm. It's through, it's through redistribution of wealth in our country. No, I, I think yeah, you're going to get a lot of listeners that are be like, yeah, right. These are uncomfortable conversations that we need to get comfortable with, really. I mean, that's that's the way I've seen it um, in my in my own, you know, privileged look, the way that I see it. Um, but thank you for sharing that. And uh, uh, we appreciate the lens and, and the the work that the entirety I mean, system of Oregon is, is taking a, taking a, a lead on. Um, Allie, uh, before we give uh, uh, Dan a, a shot here to kind of connect uh, with everybody, what are your final thoughts? Well, definitely connect with Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Dan came ready for this episode in ways that, I mean, I, I was amazed in hearing like a little 15 minute presentation. This is just going to blow people out of the waters. The work that you're doing is needed and um, it's really, really deep enriching work and i like i said earlier i personally have never heard someone who is you know in what would be labeled a more like data driven role you know num numerical you know in in lens but you take such a humanistic and like caring approach to it that um i think opens 
so many doors and conversations that need to be had in the educational space. And so we're just really glad that we connected and, and had to get to continue this conversation today. And so, Dan, um, how can people connect with you, um, some of the work that you're doing um, and anything else that's going to help us see these uncomfortable, comfortable, let's become comfortable with the uncomfortable situations and, and change education? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for both of those um Observations. I think the the best way to probably get a hold of me uh, in a, in kind of a public and a rather direct way just vanished because I deleted my Twitter account. Um, <laughs> but um, I I can be found pretty readily. My email address is on uh, the Oregon Department of Education's uh, website. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Um, and I try to respond to all emails within twenty four hours. Ooh. Not always successful, but. <laughs> That's a tough That's thing goal. to do. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you so much for being here and sharing your journey, um, the sandbox, if you will. Um, I'm excited coming away from this conversation, and uh, uh, we wish you the best. And we'll, we'll obviously um, uh, check up a little bit later and see how some of these things are scaling. Um, and we really appreciate you sharing that story. All right. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Allie, for the invitation. It was great. Great chatting with you. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you. Until next time, we'll see you on Disrupt Education. <laughs>